listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Appreciate that. Hearty welcome. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well. If we haven't met, my name's Clint, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 4. We've got a lot to do today. We're going to continue our series this morning through the book of Exodus. This is week five, I think. We're gonna start in verse 18, but as you turn there, let me set this up for us. A few weeks ago, I was with my kids and they wanted to watch TV, and because I let them do that, and you can write an email about that if you want, um, I went to the TV and I went to the DVR, um, and I'm scrolling through trying to find something for them to watch, and they get this message pops up. Hey, you're 95% full, and I'm like, okay. That's a lot, um, and I never record anything on there except for the occasional Georgia basketball game, Go dogs. Uh, but then I deleted afterwards because I have OCD. So everything on there is not my doing, okay? So I'm, I'm interested. Let's see what's here. And I quickly realized there's only two categories of things on there. The one you would expect, kid shows. The usual suspects, Paw Patrol, Daniel Tiger, Blaze, right? Everyone with small kids, you get it, all right? Um, everyone else is like, what are you talking about? So that, that was the one category. And the other category was Christmas movies, okay? And it's February, but we're going to talk about it, all right? It was Christmas movies. That's not the problem, because I love a good Christmas movie. The problem here is that over half of those Christmas movies came on Hallmark, okay? That's the issue here. And, and the reason why that's a problem, you can enjoy what you want to enjoy, but the problem with that is there is no reason to have more than one of those recorded, <laughs> because they're all the same. Nothing unexpected ever happens in a Hallmark Christmas movie. E- even when they try to throw a plot twist or a curveball, you see it coming, right? You know what's happened. That's the only way that I can get through those movies is to try to figure out how quickly can I determine what's gonna happen in this entire movie, right? Just set a, set a clock as soon as we start the thing. Um, here's, here's how it goes. DJ Tanner, she's from a small town, okay? She, she moves to a big city. She works her way to the top of the executive role that she's always hoped and dreamed for, okay? Um, just sacrificed a ton to get there. Uh, her mom calls, hey, you gonna make it home for the holidays this year? Nope, can't, can't make it home for Christmas. I have deadlines, I'm not gonna make it. Somehow the stars align, she ends up going home. She finds out that her family business isn't doing as well as she thought it was, okay? So she has to stay longer than she planned and while she's there, she meets a guy who happens to be the mayor. He also, he also runs the local Christmas tree lot and at first they don't like each other. There's a lot of tension, okay? But they keep running into each other all over town, literally bumping into each other all over town. Oh, it's you again, okay? Um, And surprise, they end up having to judge the gingerbread house competition. (laughs) And within five minutes to go in the movie, they fall in love. There's a mistletoe involved, okay? They fall in love. Um, And she, in a moment, decides, I'm gonna uproot my entire life. I'm gonna give away everything I've worked for. I'm gonna move home. I'm gonna work for the family business and they live happily ever after. That is the plot of every single Hallmark Christmas movie. Nothing unexpected ever happens, right? Just one time, I wish Hallmark would actually throw a curveball, right? The family business is actually a front for the drug cartel, okay? (laughs) And DJ Tanner is a DEA operative and she has to struggle through the internal turmoil of going, do I turn my parents in? Do I do my job faithfully? That's a good, that'd be a good movie. Who would watch that movie? That's right, we would watch that movie. Um, the reason why I waste your time with that is because nothing unexpected ever happens in a Hallmark Christmas movie. That's the opposite of what we're gonna see in Exodus chapter four. This is the last thing that you would expect to happen. So if you've been here with us, the past few weeks, Israel has been 
in exile, in slavery in Egypt, right? And Moses has been hundreds of miles away. He's in Midian. He's taking care of his father-in-law, Jethro's sheep. And God shows up to Moses in chapter three in a burning bush. Remember, he says, surely I'll turn aside and see the great thing that's happening. This bush is burning. And God shows up and talks to him. It says, um, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses tries to argue with God, starts trying to make excuses, right? He says, who am I to lead the people? And God says to him, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. Pun intended there, right? Moses hears from God his covenant name. I am who I am. God says, I am Yahweh. The Lord, the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only God, Bill said, who, who has always been and will always be. We spent a whole week talking about this is who God is, the only God, but still Moses has excuses. He starts with a case of what I call the yeah buts. Yeah, but uh, they won't listen to me. And God says, I know. They actually will, because I'm gonna give you some signs. He goes, yeah, yeah, but I'm not very good at, at public speaking. And, and God says, as Gardner mentioned, Moses, who made your mouth? The point is not, do I not know how you're gifted and how you're weak? The point is, I asked you to go to Egypt and I'll be with you. And finally, Moses reveals what he actually is feeling in chapter four, verse 13. It'll be on the screen. He says this, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And so what we learn here is that really what's going on is that Moses just doesn't wanna do what God's asking him to do. Any parents relate to that? Right, you're having a conversation with your kid. I feel like it's on repeat in my house. Hey, look at me. No, look, look. Look at daddy, get your eyes on me, right? Look at me, what did I say? And then it's just this constant repeat of listen and obey. I need you to listen and obey. I need you to listen and obey. And this is where Moses was with God. He's arguing with God because he ultimately didn't wanna do what God was calling him to do. But as arguments with God typically go, Moses loses, right? And where we left off last week, God tells Moses, I want you to take your staff in your hand and go to Egypt. And so where we pick it up today, Moses is somewhere between the yeah buts and actually being obedient to God. And what you would expect to happen next in the story is that we'd pick it up in Egypt. But that's actually where chapter five starts, right? And so for some reason, Moses, the author of this book, there's some things he wants us to know before we get to Egypt. And in this section of scripture, we have four paragraphs that describe uh, different things that happened while Moses was on the way to Egypt. And if you were to read through this, or maybe you did this past week, um, it doesn't seem to fit. Like nothing seems to fit in this. It seems like a hodgepodge of information and you wonder why would Moses even include this at all? Because it doesn't make him look good. In fact, it makes him look really bad. But I think that's the point. I think the point of this text is not look at Moses, but look at God. Look at who he is and look at how he interacts with his people. And, and there's a common thread in each of these four paragraphs that, that bring these things together. And it's, and the Lord said, the Lord said, and the Lord said, and one time it says, and the Lord met him. And so the point here is that God is speaking and God is moving, right? He's interacting with his people and Moses wants us to see that. That God is speaking and Moses is learning to look at daddy, listen, and obey. And in that, I think there's an invitation for us this morning. We get our eyes on God. We learn to listen to him and we learn to line our lives up in obedience to what he says. So I want you to see this this morning. Let's look together, verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. 
So remember where Moses was when God shows up to him in the burning bush, right? He's out in the wilderness. He's taking care of his sheep. So Moses has this encounter with God. It changed his life forever, but he has to uh, bring the sheep back first before he can be faithful, be obedient. He has to have some conversations before he can go to Egypt. And so he talks to his father-in-law first, who's also his boss, which imagine how difficult this conversation would be. Like Moses worked for Jethro for over 40 years or 40 years. Have you ever had a job for years that you loved, but then you, you knew it was, it was, you had to quit. You had to move on, right? You invested in something for years and people you care about and, and it's time for you to move on. That's not an easy conversation, is it? And on top of that, this wasn't just his boss. This is his father-in-law. This is his kid's grandfather. And he's asking for Jethro's blessing to take his, their, his daughter, Moses' wife and his grandsons and to go to Egypt. Asking for a blessing to go, which again, not going to Egypt wasn't just a weekend trip. It's not like, hey, we'll see you in a couple of days. It's like, we may never see you again. And Jethro responds in an unexpected way. He says, go in peace. Not just, I guess you could go if that's what you really wanna do, but go in peace. And the word here is shalom. This, this word means God's fullness and his blessing, it's wholeness. So Jethro gives Moses his complete blessing to take his family and go to Egypt. And so on one hand, Moses is being obedient to God. He's putting some things in order to do what God told him to do. He's got Jethro's blessing. He's been respectful, but he isn't completely honest, is he? Right, what's he say to Jethro? He doesn't mention the burning bush. He doesn't mention an encounter with God or the fact that the real reason why God had called him to go to Egypt and he wanted to go is because God had commissioned him to go and deliver his people. He just says, I wanna go see if my brothers are still alive. This still alive just means well-being. I'm gonna go see how they're doing. Can I just go to Egypt? So we don't exactly know why, but, but for some reason, Moses isn't completely honest here to Jethro. And I think what's going on is that Moses is afraid. He's afraid to tell Jethro the truth. And to be fair, it is easier to say what he said than to tell the truth, isn't it? So Jethro's like, wait, why do you wanna go to Egypt again? Well, here's the thing. It was in the wilderness, this bush was on fire. I went to it and God started talking to me. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he said, go tell the most powerful man on the planet to just let two million slaves go free. So I think that's what I'm gonna do, right? That, that wouldn't go, how do you think Jethro would respond? Oh, and you wanna take my daughter with you? And my grandkids? You, you okay, buddy? Like, you sure you hadn't been in the wilderness too long with the sheep? Okay, this is not, that's not an easy conversation there. And I, and I think the reason why Moses doesn't tell the truth is because he's afraid, he's embarrassed. He's had this encounter with God, but he still has all the same fears and anxieties he had in chapter three. And what I want you to see in that is we tend to think that in our lives as Christians and our lives as following Jesus, that there's gonna be a point where we just kind of arrive. And at that moment, we're, we're not gonna struggle anymore. Not gonna struggle with our sin or we shouldn't struggle with fears or anxieties or doubts anymore. We just kind of always are gonna perfectly obey. You're not even gonna need to set an alarm in the morning anymore. The Holy Spirit's just gonna wake you up. Hey buddy, time to get up, right? Your Bible pops open automatically to what God wants to say to you. We think there's this, this moment in our lives as Christians where we just kind of arrive. We're not gonna struggle anymore and yet what we see in Exodus chapter four is that Moses is still a work in progress. He's afraid. He's afraid to tell his father-in-law the truth about what happened to him in Egypt, but God showed up and that God had called him to go. He's afraid, but he is going. He's moving. His obedience here isn't perfect, but he's going. So how would you expect God to respond here? How would you expect God to respond to Moses being embarrassed to say, hey, by the way, I had this unbelievable encounter with God like no one's ever had before. Verse 19, the Lord said, 
to Moses. Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We see God respond here. Instead of rejecting or rebuking Moses, God gives him reassurance. He says, all the men who are seeking your life in Egypt are dead. Remember back in chapter two, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. And so he's, he's a Hebrew, but he's kind of an Egyptian and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he takes matters into his own hands and he kills the man and he buries him in the sand. He thinks he gets away with it, but it, come to find out, Pharaoh knows. Moses has to run for his life. This is the whole reason why he's in Midian in the first place. Surely that was swirling around in his mind when God says, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt. He goes, you got the wrong guy. Can't go back there. I'm a murderer. I'm a wanted man there, right? Surely Moses is afraid and yet... God responds to his fear with reassurance and not rebuke. And here's the point, and this goes back to what we talked about last week. God knows you're not perfect. He does. He's not surprised by your doubts and your failures. He's not waiting on you to get to the point where you arrive so that you no longer struggle with fear. He doesn't expect your obedience to be perfect. What he wants is for you to not get stuck in your past failures and to move. He wants you to move. And being a work in progress, if you read your Bible, you'll see that being a work in progress does not disqualify you from a life with God. In fact, the only way to live a life with God is to be a work in progress. Church, there is a day of arrival coming. Only it's not our arrival, it's his. It's not you arriving at the place where you no longer struggle anymore. It's the arrival of the Lord Jesus to make all things new, including you and me. And until then, we... As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter three, we press on. This will be on the screen. The Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. He's saying, I haven't arrived. I haven't, I haven't arrived. I'm not there, but he says, I'm not stuck. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice it's not, I move toward perfection so that Jesus will, I can belong to him. No, I belong to him and so I'm not stuck in my past failures. I move towards him. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on which means we don't get stuck in our past failures and it means that we shouldn't expect perfect obedience. We press on like Moses, the end of verse 20, what's he do? He takes the staff of God in his hand. And remember, this is the same staff that Moses had when God shows up to him in the burning bush, right? But now it's not Moses' staff, it's the staff of God. And this for Moses is evidence that God's power is with him and his presence is with him. And you may say right now, well, that would be awesome. I would love to have a stick that I could throw down and turn into a snake if I wanted it to, to show that God was with me. Well, You're right, we don't have that, but in Christ, we have something far better. We have the promise that God is with us personally, that he has given us his spirit. And with that, we too have the reassurance that when we fail, God will not reject us. The spirit of God is evidence to us that when we fail, God will not reject us, which means that when you drop the ball, not if, but when, you can run to God rather than running from him. You can go right to him because he knows and he doesn't expect your obedience to be perfect. He wants you to move. Forget what lies behind, pressing on, straining forward. Let's keep going. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. So God has already said to Moses, I'm gonna give you some signs. And, and these signs, remember the, the staff turns into the serpent, his hand, the leprosy, scoop the Nile, turn into blood. These signs are gonna to serve to help the elders of Israel believe that you really are from me, that I'm really commissioning you to go. I'm gonna give you those things. But now he says, I want you to do the same signs before Pharaoh, only he's not gonna believe you. And the reason why he's not gonna believe you is because I am going to harden his heart. So think about how Moses would have felt here. Moses is, is a work in progress, but he's getting closer, right? He's learned his lesson. So he's not just making excuses to God, but he hears this and he may raise his hand, head down. Yes, Moses. So you're sending me on an impossible mission. Because you just said you want me to go do it, but it ain't gonna work. So why do you want me to go do it, right? And it's not like God says, hey, just a heads up, this might not go well. He explicitly says, it's not gonna work because I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is an idea that we don't like. I'm just gonna address the tension. This is an idea that we don't like, that God, the Bible says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And, and this brings up some theological problems for us. Some questions in our mind is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And before we talk a little bit more about this, I will say that this is the first time of many that we're gonna see this in the book of Exodus. This is a major theme in the book of Exodus. Starts in chapter four, runs through Exodus 14, 15. In fact, this is a major theme in the entire Bible. But what we're talking about here is the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That's what we're talking about here. And where our minds inevitably go with this is to wonder, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so does he still do that today? And the short answer is yes, he does. And I know we don't like that, but that's what the Bible teaches, that our God is sovereign. That's a word that means he is in complete control of every square inch of creation. Psalm 115 verse three says that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, Christians love that verse when God's doing something we want him to do. Our God's in the heavens, does whatever he pleases. I'll put that shirt on, I'll drink out of that coffee cup. But what happens when, when it's something we don't understand or something we don't like? Is God not in the heavens? Can he not do whatever he pleases? Right? What this means is that God is always bigger than we think. Isaiah chapter five, the prophet Isaiah, God is declaring that this is true about him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what this means for us is when you hit the spot where you read something in the scriptures, not hear something about God, but when you read something in God's word of him disclosing to us, this is who I am, and you go, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. Then you come back to Isaiah 55 and he goes, yeah, exactly, because my thoughts aren't your thoughts. I don't think the way you think. It doesn't, if you don't understand, it doesn't make it wrong. What the Bible is teaching here in Exodus is that God is ultimately sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. And I know we don't like that, but here's what you need to understand. Yes, God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but not in a way that absolves Pharaoh's own personal responsibility. Pharaoh was a wicked man. He thought of himself as a God. He demanded that people worship him as a God. He had enslaved the people of Israel for decades and had personally seen to the death of many of them, right? It's not like Pharaoh was going, Yahweh, I love you. I would worship you if you would just let me. That's not how this hardening of Pharaoh's heart works. There is a tension there, right? 
Pharaoh wanted nothing to do with God and is in complete opposition to worshiping him. And we'll see this next week in chapter five. God, or Moses and Aaron do show up to Pharaoh and they say, listen, Yahweh says that you need to let his people go. And he goes, who is Yahweh? That I would obey him. He goes, I ain't doing it. Again, we'll see this next week. The point is the Bible teaches that even though God is sovereign over all things, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh is still responsible for his sin still responsible for his opposition against God. And so did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. And it doesn't matter if we like that or if it's difficult for us to understand because this is what the Bible teaches. And I was reading this week, a pastor said this, that God is not a puzzle for us to try and solve. Like we gotta get all the pieces together or it's not gonna work. It's not a puzzle for us to try and solve. He is a mystery for us to adore. And so while we may not be able to know God completely, we can know him truthfully as he reveals himself to us in his word. And to be honest, I think the whole reason that God says this here in Exodus 4 is so that Moses wouldn't be surprised by Pharaoh's opposition. This is God's kindness to Moses. He's declaring his absolute sovereignty over Pharaoh, so Moses isn't gonna be surprised when Pharaoh pushes back, right? God is saying to Moses, even the resistance of Pharaoh is part of my plan and my purpose to deliver my people. I am that much in control. Let me share this quote with you from one of the commentaries I read on this and then we'll move on. He says, from beginning to end, the entire Exodus was the result of God's sovereign decree. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt is entirely God's doing and under his complete control. The impending Exodus is a play in which God is the author, the producer, the director, and the principal actor. Even when, I love this part, even when Pharaoh takes his turn on the stage, God receives all the applause. And like everything else that God does or has ever done, the Exodus was all for his glory. Verse 22, God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Uh, not a Hallmark movie, right? This is the first time in scripture we see this, the, the, that Israel, God's people, referred to as God's son. Not only his son, it's his firstborn son. And what God is saying here is these aren't slaves, these aren't just my people, these are my family. And if they're my son, then I am their father. This is what God's declaring is true about the relationship, the covenant that he makes between him and his people. And God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, hey, they aren't just slaves. These people belong to me and they're not my slaves. They are my son, right? This is the firstborn, which in the culture, the firstborn would receive the inheritance and receive the name and the image of the father. And he says to Pharaoh, let them go that they may serve me. And if you don't, then I'm gonna take your firstborn son. And this is foreshadowing of the 10th and final plague, which actually does force Pharaoh's hand to deliver uh, God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt. But there's, there's something bigger happening here I want you to see. So God introduces this principle of a son for a son. Like, you give me my son or I'm taking yours, right? And yeah, this takes place in the 10th plague, but this principle of a son for a son, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That God declares that we are his firstborn son, and so we are trapped, not under Pharaoh, but under the ultimate enemy of sin and death. And God sends his son, Jesus, to redeem us out from underneath slavery and bondage to our sin and death. And what's interesting here is in verse 23, God uses the word serve. 
He doesn't say, let my son go so that he can be free. He says, let him go that he might serve me. And this is an important distinction to make because it means that the opposite of slavery is not autonomy. It means for us that the opposite of being trapped in our sin is not, hey, go do whatever you want, right? God is delivering his people from the burden of slavery, but that does not make them free to do whatever they want. God says, let them go that they may serve me, which means that being a Christian is that God delivers you from the burden of slavery to your sin so that you can take up a burden that is easy and a yoke that is light. And since the beginning, the lie from the enemy has been, you can't trust God. The lie from the devil that you hear and I hear every single day of our lives is that you cannot trust him as Lord. He cannot be your master. And he whispers in your ear, if you look to God, if you listen to him, if you line your life up with what he says in obedience to what he says, then if you do that, then you're gonna miss out. And we hear this in high school going, hey man, if you follow Jesus, you're gonna miss out on what high school has to offer, college or young adulthood or in marriage or in business or whatever. If you follow Jesus here, you're gonna miss out on getting ahead like everybody else. We hear this lie and we believe that there's a middle ground between fully embracing our sin and fully embracing Jesus as Lord and we pick and choose. We try to play the game. We gotta take a little bit of what the life has to offer. I'm gonna take a little bit of what um, Jesus has to offer and we think we can have it both ways. But that ain't how it works. The invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11 is not come and let me improve your life a little bit. It's not come to me if you ever need anything and I'll be glad to help you out. That's not the invitation. The invitation is come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. But the kicker is he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And he says this, you will find rest for your souls. There's no middle ground. We can't take a little bit of this, take a little bit of this. Embracing Jesus as Lord of our lives means taking the yoke upon us, his yoke, which he says is easy and the burden, which is light. To fully embrace the Lordship of Jesus in our lives means that when we do, he will give us the promise to find the rest that we want for our souls, which is, means this. The thing that you, you feel like you need in life, the thing that you're desperate for, going, if I could just get this, then my life would be everything I want. That's what Jesus means by rest for your souls. That little thing where no matter what you do or what relationship you have or how far you make it in business or what school you get into, that little thing that says, is this it? That, that's your, your soul saying, I want rest and it can only be found in Jesus. And he's saying, fully embrace me. We're playing the game, picking and choosing, it's not how it works. He's inviting us to listen to him and obey because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Look at verse 24, this is where it gets fun. At a lodging place on the way, when you hear lodging place, not Hilton Garden Inn, okay, that's the campground. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death, okay? Gets weirder. Then Zipporah took a flint, that's his, that's his wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. See what I meant about not being a Hallmark movie? Um, so here's what's going on here. Moses is on the way to Egypt to do what God has called him to do. And along the way, as they camp for the night, the Bible says God shows up and sought to kill him. Why would he do that? There's a ton of questions surrounding these three verses. In fact, many commentators would say that these three verses are the most enigmatic, hard to understand verses in the entire Bible. Not just because they're unexpected, like way out of left field, right? But because we have honestly aren't sure 
what's going on in the original language. Let me give you a few of these. Verse 24 says, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's an important piece of information. Who is he? We don't know. Biblical scholars, Hebrew scholars, we don't know. Who is it? Is it Moses? Is it his firstborn son? We're honestly not sure. Could be either. We also aren't sure what this near-death experience looked like. Right, could have come down with a sudden illness, some severe illness, some kind of seizure, right? Some commentators connect this to Genesis 32 where the angel of the Lord shows up to Jacob and wrestles with him all night. And so maybe God did the same thing and put Moses in a chokehold, right? We don't know. Whatever it was, Zipporah, his wife, knows it's serious because she jumps to action, but that even raises more questions, right? How, do, how did she know that circumcision was the problem here? And again, the original language isn't clear. We don't know, right? We don't know what she means by bridegroom of blood. Some people say that was like in a term of endearment that Moses is, is, comes back to restore to health. And she's like, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And, and other people say it's actually said in disgust. that she takes the thing that she cut off. Not gonna go into detail there. She throws it as a feet and said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. We don't know what's going on here. A lot we don't know. What we do know is that God shows up to kill someone. And it has to do with circumcision. But Why? Why would he do this, right? The short answer is that it has to do with the sign of the covenant. The sign of this covenant relationship with God. Let me explain. Genesis 17, it'll be on the screen. So God shows up to a man named Abram, makes a covenant with him, changes his name to Abraham. That's Father Abraham. He had many sons. Verse nine, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11 toward the end, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 14 toward the end, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. So God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says this is a sign of our relationship, right? So when you hear covenant, uh, think forever commitment. Not contractual, not if you do your part and I do my part, then we're good, but as soon as you break it, we're done. No, a forever commitment. Think wedding vows, a bride and groom standing at the altar for richer or poorer, better or worse, sickness and in health, I do. I'm in, I'm covenanting myself to you. Even if everything that I love about you vanishes, if you're sick and it goes worse, then even that, I'm in. I'm covenanting myself to you. And a sign of a wedding, Covenant, it rings or vows, right? Signifies the husband and wife belong to one another. Well, God makes a covenant commitment to his people. He says, we don't enter in on a contractual basis. We are covenanted into relationship with one another. Only the sign of belonging to this covenant is circumcision. Not what I would have picked. Would have gone with an earring or something, but his ways are higher than our ways, okay? His thoughts are not our thoughts. God says, this is a sign. This is what points to the reality that I am your God and you are my people, that we belong to one another. And although there is a lot unclear in Exodus chapter four, what is clear is that Moses had not taken the covenant seriously. And my best guess of what happened, what's happened here is that while Moses was in Midian for those 40 years and he married to poor and they were having children, he did not raise his son as a part of the covenant people of God that he had failed to circumcise even his own son. He didn't take the covenant or God's word seriously. And the Bible says that God took this incredibly seriously to the point that even he sought to kill Moses. And it says he sought to kill Moses because if he intended to kill Moses, Moses would have been dead. But instead he brings Moses to the very brink of death and the question we have to answer is why? 
Why would he do this now? We, we already said before, he's a work in progress. He'd failed before. Why not try to kill Moses when he was making excuses? Why not kill him when he refused to go? Why now? He's being obedient, right? He's on the way to Egypt. And again, the short answer is because of the covenant. And what we see in this is that there is freedom to be a work in progress under covenant relationship with God. But there is not freedom to be a work in progress outside of that covenant. And what these three, three verses teach us is that God doesn't need Moses to be eloquent with his words. He doesn't, he's patient with Moses and his uh, excuses and he's even gracious to Moses when he refuses. But being outside the covenant is not an option. And the same thing is true for us today. That inside the covenant with God, there is grace and mercy and a fullness of life. But outside of it, there is wrath and judgment and a punishment for sin. So what does this mean for us, right? Do, do we need to live in fear that God might show up one day? Should we avoid camping altogether? No. No, because under the old covenant, God provided a way for his people to be restored and to dwell with him through the shedding of blood and circumcision. But you and I live under a different covenant. And Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood that God makes a way for us to dwell with him through the, through the broken body and shed blood of his son, Jesus. And under that covenant, there was grace and kindness and eternal life. Colossians 2 says, the sign of the old covenant is this circumcision of the flesh, but the sign of the new covenant is the circumcision of the heart, which means it's not what we do that makes us belong to the people of God. It's what Christ has done for us. It's us putting our faith and what Christ has done for us and his spirit comes inside of us and we have this sign in our hearts. And we can see this in Exodus chapter four. Moses is done, right? He is at the brink of death, nothing he can do to change his situation, right? Because of his disobedience, he's done. And yet God in his grace provides a way for Moses to be restored through the shedding of blood. This is what Christ has done for you and me. This is why we celebrate communion. It's weird for outsiders to come in and go, we say, this is the broken body, this piece of cra this cracker, especially now with the open thing, this is the broken body of Jesus, this is the shed blood of Jesus. You go, I don't wanna drink that. Why do we celebrate blood? Because through it, all our sins are washed away. Because under this covenant, this new covenant in Christ's blood, we don't have to continually offer sacrifices or wonder or hope if God's gonna come around the corner and try to get us. This is why we sing songs about the blood of Jesus. We celebrate that God has made a way for us to be whole, to belong to him as his children. Let's finish this up. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, again, Yahweh said, go into the wilderness, meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God, that's Mount Sinai, and he kissed him again. We don't know how long it's been since Moses and Aaron have seen each other. Long time, probably. God shows up to Aaron and says, hey, go meet Moses. Who? Your brother, okay, I go, right? Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with, uh, with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoke to Moses, did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. I think we could... We could preach a whole sermon on that 
few verses there, but I'm 35 minutes in, so we'll make it quick. I got two things for you here. This is what God said would happen. That's the first one. Remember back in chapter three, Moses is making excuses with God. He says, but what if they don't believe me? But I'm not good at talking. What if they don't believe me? He's afraid of being rejected by the elders of Israel. And God says they will, and they do. And and honestly, the, the point there is that God's word can be trusted. God's word to you can be trusted. Again, there is no middle ground between embracing our sin and embracing the lordship of Jesus. But so many of us play the game going, well, I want a little bit of this and I trust Jesus here, but not so much here. There is no middle ground. And God's word can be trusted. The joy and rest that we so desperately want in our souls can only be given to us in Christ and he stands ready to give it to us. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Quit playing the game. Embrace the lordship of Christ in your life. Church, we as God's children need to keep our eyes on God. We listen to him and we obey. Just like me with my boys. Hey, what did daddy say? Listen and obey. Same thing for you and me. What did he say? His word can be trusted. Listen and obey. Here's the second one. Verse 31, when the people heard that the Lord had visited them and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. The Bible says they believed that God had visited them and so they worshiped. And what's interesting here is that nothing had changed about their circumstances. They're still in Egypt. They're still slaves to Pharaoh. They are still waiting on God to deliver them. And in fact, in chapter five and following, it gets a lot more difficult for them. So nothing about their circumstances had changed at all and yet they worshiped. Why? Because they heard that the Lord had seen their affliction and had visited them. So what are you waiting for in your life that keeps you from worshiping? What's the thing where you go, man, if I could just get this, then I can worship God. Then I could fully believe and embrace the Lordship in his life because I know then he's seen me. I know that he's visited me, right? What are you waiting for? Let me encourage you this way. The wait for us should be over. And I'm not saying that because your waiting isn't important or the loss that you feel for the things that you hope and dream for in your life don't matter, they're not real and they're not painful. I'm saying this because God has sent us a better deliverer than Moses and Aaron. And so if there's something in us that says, I can't worship God until blank, then then we need to go back to this passage and then we go, have we seen, have we heard that God has seen our afflictions and he has visited us? Because Christ has come. And the Bible says that he's coming again. And so I want us to bow our heads and respond in worship to the God who has seen our affliction and visited us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for in a passage that is difficult to understand, we can see Jesus clearly. We pray, God, that in this moment, where there are things or circumstances in our lives that we are hoping to change before we can embrace your lordship in our lives, would you help us by the power of the spirit to believe that you've seen our affliction, that you met our needs, that you are the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. I pray, God, that we would worship you as you and you alone deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond in song.